to more people. Good, good. The more the merrier. We will. Uh, I will uh, say that <coughs> it is very useful. <laughs> we ended the opening last year. We can do a separate session afterwards, like last year. Let's, uh, let's start. So um, may I just say before we start that uh, like last year, we will be recording the, um, the lecture and make it available as a podcast that will give the opportunity to other people who are not able to be here today to listen to it and, um, and look at the PowerPoint online. So for that reason, the recording machine is here on the table. I would be grateful if you would be careful not to make trembling movements uh, that shake the table, and that would be reflected uh, uh, badly in the recording. Thank you. So we start. Welcome, everybody, to the second year of uh, the seminar in the history of the book, hosted by the 15th century book trade and also by the visiting scholars center here in the western library our first speaker is dr alan stahl from princeton university library who is the curator of uh, numismatics there alan um, is the world expert on venetian coinage and published widely on the subject we were very lucky to um, convince him to come to us mm -hmm. while uh, doing uh, uh, a visiting research period in Venice. In fact, we flew back from Venice back to the UK yesterday altogether. Like last year, the main um, objective of these seminars um, is that they are both international and interdisciplinary. This is reflected by the program that you will have seen. On top of that, because in September 2018, we will be discussing and presenting the results of the 15th century book trade project in a conference and exhibition that will be taking place in the Correr Museum and Marciana Library in Venice. The flavor of this year's seminar is definitely Venetian. And that is because we want to make sure that what we will be presenting and the research that we have been bringing together, it's, it fits um, all sorts of um, um, specialties. And that is the main reason why we have Alan here today, to make sure that all the work that we are doing relating to the economic dimension of early printing is done soundly. And you will, I'll circulate now a little postcard of this exhibition that we have just prepared, almost as a test. You let us know what you think. And so without further uh, introduction, I leave the floor to Alan. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's a great honor to be here in a seminar that in its so far brief existence has, has become very highly respected and talked about in my home institution, the Department of Rare Books and Special Collections in Firestone Library at Princeton. So it's nice to be able to participate even as the one non-book person in the department. So. Uh, Thank you. I will begin, well, I was going to begin with two confessions. One that I am, I basically work on Venice and hence uh, the world of Florence, Milan and Rome is, is much less familiar to me, but I'm glad to hear that the focus now is on Venice. But also another confession, I'm a medievalist and my own work 
pretty well goes up to 1450, and anything thereafter is things that I sort of look at from afar. But uh, So you'll have to forgive me for starting with the Middle Ages, because I believe the Middle Ages is the core of modern Europe. So here we go. And I'll begin with the starting point for most things medieval, that is with Charlemagne and the Carolingian Empire. Uh, very complicated history of coinage leading up to the 8th century, and then it all just sort of disappears, at least throughout virtually all of Europe, to be replaced by a single coin, the penny, uh, denier, denaro, what you will. And uh, unlike what the name penny brings up in the minds of Americans as well as Brits. This is a silver coin. Uh, it's approximately two grams or so. And uh, it's really the only coin minted for 400 years in Europe. So it, it really lies at the base. Uh, and to see this, we can see that on the obverse, the obverse will always be on the left, although sometimes it's conventional which is the obverse and which is the reverse with medieval coins. Uh, we have the name of the emperor around a cross, and on the reverse, the name of the mint around a symbol, in this case, the famous monogram of Charlemagne. So this is a coin from about 800, and at about the same period, Charlemagne introduces a system which will last even longer than 400 years, in fact, some of us in this room are old enough to remember pounds, shillings, and pence in Britain, uh, which is, I guess, as far as it lasted, but it was universal throughout Europe, with a couple exceptions, in the Middle Ages and well into the modern period, with the base of the system being the penny, uh, a silver coin, remember. Occasionally, you will get a half denarius, called an oval or a mai in French or a medaglia in Italian. But basically, that's really the exception. The coin is the penny. And then other things are simply units of account or even more basically units of accounting. So the term solidus comes in, which had been a Roman gold coin. But again, that's completely forgotten by 800. And it's simply a counting unit for 12 pennies. It, it, so solidus, in, in other ways too, when it comes to metrology and other things, a solidus means a dozen in practical terms. Uh, so it's just an accounting term. And then there's a larger accounting term called the pound. And of course, the pound also exists as a unit of weight. But, uh, and it's sometimes hard to tell what they're talking about, but in monetary t terms, a pound is by def definition 240 pennies or 20 soldi, 20 shillings. But remember, only one coin exists in this period, and that is the silver denarius. Now, I showed you a silver denarius from 800. Here I'm showing you one from 1250, 450 years later of, I guess, a very far descendant of Charlemagne, Louis IX, St. Louis, uh, with, again, on the obverse, the king's name around a cross, and with the reverse, the name of the mint around a symbol here, the castle of Tours, giving it the name of Denier Tournois. But basically, the coin is the same. Also, if we get into more details, it's no longer of fine silver. It's of... Uh, base silver to the point where it's probably passed below 50% silver and above 50% copper, and we would technically call it billin. Uh, and this loss of value, this debasement of the silver coinage is a feature of European medieval coinage that carries on into the modern period. So constantly through the modern period, the silver coinage keeps being debased. That is, the amount of silver represented by a penny goes down from two grams to just an infinitesimal amount. Uh, and it goes down, of course, in Italy, differently in each city. In France, there's 
some difference, but not as much. In England, of course, with your sterling, it stays sterling at least into the 15th century. And then we begin having problems here. So here are the two coins representing a 450 year spread in which not much happens monetarily in Latin Europe. Uh, here we have the English sterling, which maintains its fineness unlike the others. Another feature of the sterling, which is not typical on most of the continent, especially the southern part, is the use of an image of the king. Uh, in Italy, in France, generally, there are symbols, crosses, whatever, but not an image. Uh, in Germany, there's much more variety. Here we have uh, a penny of Cologne uh, with the bishop depicted on the obverse and a image of his church, not, of course, an actual drawing of what the church actually looked like, but the image of a church on the reverse. Finally, things begin changing, of course, in Venice. Uh, in the period around 1200, uh, with the introduction for the first time of a multiple coin. That is, we no longer just have a penny. We now have a grosso, which originally is issued as 24 pennies. So it's not much bigger than Charlemagne's penny, but that just shows how much debasement had gone on, especially in Italy, so that a new coin that's not very different from the old coin is now worth 24 times as much. In the rest of Europe, this idea of a multiple coin spreads, and here again we have St. Louis in around 1260 introducing a multiple penny for France with 12 fleurs de lis around the outside, basically just added a border, and that symbolizes that this is worth 12 old denier tournois, the new gros tournois. Uh, everything that's done in France or England is imitated in Flanders. So we're, here we have the Flemish imitation of the French gros with the lion rep replacing the image of Tours. In England, we have a groat, but since the sterling penny was so good throughout this period, the big silver coin is only worth four pennies because the English penny was worth about four of the French in the period. And here we've enlarged the image of the king on the obverse, but again added a circle on the reverse. Again, we have to look to Italy for the change. Everything we've seen up to now is silver. The change comes from the south of Italy and goes up to the north with the gold Augustalis issued by Frederick II Hohenstaufen uh, from Mintz, both in southern Italy in Brindisi and in Sicily in Messina, he ruled both, as well as being Holy Roman Emperor and ruling a lot of Germany uh, and technically ruling a lot of Italy. Uh, but his coinage there doesn't reflect any of this innovation. His innovation here, as you can see, is not only a gold coin for the first time in Europe, coming out of a European mint in about uh, 800 years, uh, 600 years, but as you can see, also a return to classicism. Those medieval coins look medieval. Frederick's coin looks like someone found a Roman coin and imitated it. There's been a lot of work on which Roman coin might have been imitated, and it looks like it's not a single Roman coin, it's sort of Roman coinage being imitated. The eagle is certainly not a good imitation of the proud Roman uh, legional symbol. Uh, but even the lettering is much more classicizing. And this coin actually had uh, an existence. It actually was used for money. It's just not, not just a vanity release. It, it, it did establish a monetary system. But like most of the innovations of Frederick II, this was a good idea that didn't carry through, mainly because he 
didn't carry through on much of anything he did. And then when he dies in 1250, everything collapses around him. The whole uh, Holy Roman Empire uniting the, the former Norman territories of Sicily and South Italy with the German territories breaks down and it is never really reestablished. Uh, but one thing that does happen, we don't really know from documentation that there was an idea that only the emperor could make gold coins, but people wait until there is no emperor, that is the death of Frederick II, and then all of a sudden gold coinage appears in Italy in the communes. And by what can't be a coincidence, in the year 1252, that is only two years after the death of Frederick, both Genoa and Florence not only issue gold coinage for the first time, but they issue a coin of exactly the same weight, 3.53 grams. But we don't have the documentation of a coin league between those two cities. We do have coin leagues in this period for silver coinage, but there's no documentation of gold coinage, and of course, this being Italy, the Genoese say they did it first, and Genoese, modern Genoese scholars say Genoa did it first, and modern Florentine scholars say Florence did it first. But it does seem that both of them started with exactly the same denomination, called the Genovino, of course, in Genoa, and a Florin in Florence, but both of exactly the same fineness. Uh, and from now on, the term Genovino and Florin can be considered pretty much interchangeable. There are times in the 15th century when the Florin gets debased a little, loses some weight, maybe loses a little fineness. The Genovino also has a life of its own. But for the most part, in price terms, if you see Genovino, if you see Florin, they mean the same thing. And uh, even in Northern Europe, you'll see the Florin imitated. Uh, the Florin of Florence classically has John the Baptist on the obverse, and the lily, uh, sort of a pun on the name Florence, Giglio, flower, uh, in the same way as the gate on the coin of Venice, Janua in classical Latin, uh, is a pun on the name Genoa. Sometimes these puns are more invented than they are real, but at least it exists. Here we have St. Ladislaus replacing John the Baptist on a Hungarian gold. And to answer a question which always comes up, much of the gold in this period is coming from Hungary and coming from Northern Europe, although a lot of it is coming from Africa as well. And the African gold gets to Genoa. The Northern European gold will come in to Venice mainly. And then finally, uh, rather late, Venice in 1285 begins issuing its gold ducat. And here we have the documentation that it is explicitly to be the same quality as the florin same weight as the florin, which in modern terms is 3.53 grams, and pure 24 karat gold, as pure as it could get. And on the ducat, we have on the obverse, the doge kneeling before St. Mark, both of their names appearing on the obverse, on the reverse, Christ standing in a mandorla, an almond shape, and uh, a religious saying that I haven't been able to track down in any other medium, sit tibi Christe datos quam tu regis iste ducatus, a nice rhyming couplet, uh, ending in the word ducatus, or abbreviated on the coin ducat, and it gives its name to the ducat. And now, from now on, again, the ducat will be synonymous with the Florin and with the Genovino, and they will all be the same standard. And in account books, you may see 
florins come in and then be accounted as ducats because they're interchangeable, except when they're not, which are certain periods, and except when finally in the early 16th century the ducat becomes a silver coin and the gold coin, which we used to call a ducat, becomes called a tsekino because it is the ducat of the mint, of the tseka. So it's the tsekino, which in English comes out as sequin. Uh, so, and then that continues, whereas the minted ducat becomes silver. I explain this all in this uh, little introductory thing on Venetian coinage that I handed out. Uh, in, and basically in Italy, which of course is the, cent the commercial center for imports into Europe, and luxury production such as books and silks. Uh, the gold coinage becomes the standard and the silver coinage, as I said, keeps getting debased and you will constantly see a quotation of what the local silver of any city is in terms of the gold ducat or florin. And if you need that for any period up, to the year 1500, you can look from the bibliography I gave you on Spufford's handbook, which is invaluable. And it lists every city in Europe and what their coinage is worth against the florin and ducat up to the year 1500. He was a medievalist, so he didn't want to take it beyond 1500. And once you get beyond 1500, things are much less clearly uh, available in the scholarship. Now, Northern Europe was different. The French decided to keep the silver as the basis and the gold coin would uh, be based on the silver. The problem <clears throat> we have throughout world history is what's called the bimetallic ratio. That is the relative value of a given weight of silver versus a given weight of gold is constantly fluctuating. Uh, driven by the availability of mines and new introductions of both gold and silver. Of course, once we open up the new world, we get huge amounts. We get lots of gold, but we get much more silver, and that will distort the bimetallic ratio. But there are things happening like India always overvalues gold. So there is profit to be made in arbitrage by sending your gold to India, getting silver back and then exchanging it back in Venice. So there's a constant movement and a constant changing of bimetallic ratios, which means that the French and also the English gold coins have to keep changing their weight in order to keep them in tandem with the silver currency, which at least in England is constant. French are debasing their silver and their gold at the same time. It's impossible to keep track, especially in the 14th century. And again, as I, here's the great English coin of the Middle Ages, the noble, but it goes through six different weight periods just in the reign of Edward III. And as I said, anything that France or England do monetarily, Flanders will imitate, and so here's the Flemish imitation of the English noble. The basic ducat standard gets taken over in Spain in the 15th century with the double ducat or excelente of Ferdinand and Isabella, and because it's a double portrait as well as a double ducat, it gets known as the doubloon and of course has its own history, especially in my continent. Uh, in, within Italy, the ducat becomes the basis of the first use of real portraiture on coins, as opposed to an image of a re ruler in the coinage of the later 15th century in Northern Italy. You can compare the image of the ruler on a coin with that in other media, especially here, Francesco Sforza, we're clearly not dealing with an idealized ruler image, but we're still dealing with the ducat. And so this ducat would be exchangeable with a Venetian ducat or a Florentine florin monetarily. 
Okay. Then we get a lot of new silver, and the silver in the 15th century starts coming out of the Tyrol, and Austrian mints begin producing a lot of silver. This, of course, you notice is before Columbus, so we don't yet have the New World silver, but we have a new supply of silver and no longer a lot of gold coming in from either Africa or Hungary. So silver becomes important, and so the mints start minting silver. Now silver, as I said, the ratio of gold to silver is about, is always changing, but 10 to 1, 12 to 1 is the, you know, the, the general level to think. That is, a given weight of gold is worth about 10 times the weight of silver. And so therefore, a gold ducat at 3.5 grams would be equivalent to a silver coin of about 30 grams, which of course would be a large coin, much more room for giving a nice portrait, more room for giving details, uh, but it will bring, a, bring around uh, the mechanization of minting, which is again tied probably with the same screw press technology as is being used for printing in the same period. The idea that you need real force instead of just a manual hammer blow to transfer an image onto this big mass of silver rather than this tiny piece of gold. Also, gold is more malleable than silver, so it's easier to strike gold. It's softer than silver for the most part. So we start getting the appearance of large silver coins, larger than the Grosso in northern Italy, and many of them take the term testone because they are a good basic for, basis for portraiture. That is, they are head coins, testone. In Venice, Venice is a republic. The Venetians do not believe in the personality of the ruler as the image of the republic. There were always images of the doge kneeling before Christ on the docket, but that had never been a specific doge. It was just an image of a doge. Whereas here in 1473, we have an experiment in two senses. One with the actual portrait. Again, there's no way this could be idealized. Uh, and of course, we do have a lot of other images of Trone. Uh, and also, it's the first time that the lira appears as a coin. Lira, remember, is pound, which means 240 pennies. And it hadn't existed as a single coin. The grosso had existed as 24 pennies, and it lose, gains value against the penny and eventually is worth 48 pennies. Uh, but nobody had thought to mint a whole pound, a whole 240 penny coin, but that's partly because of the arrival of all this silver, and so silver is a cheaper medium to mint than gold, and the use of milling machines, again, notice this is exactly the period of your printing presses, uh, brings this up. However, this coin was considered uh, a, an assault on the, on the republican nature of Venice. That is, uh, there's a quote from the period, tyrants put their images on coins, leaders of republics do not. And this actually is tied in with the growing world of humanism and of classical scholarship. They are realizing the difference between the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire, whereas in the Middle Ages, Roman history was mainly the empire. But now they're learning that the Republic had a different structure, that it was a 
commonwealth, a commune, not that different from the Italian communes of the Middle Ages in some ways, and that under the Republic, the images of the rulers did not appear on coins. Caesar is just about the first to put his image on a coin, and again, that's a sign of tyranny. So this all comes together, and this is a very short-lived experiment, putting the ruler's image on a Venetian coin. Uh, in the seigneuries, in the, the autocratic states, neighboring Venice, and throughout northern Italy, of course, there's no pretense anymore that these are communes. And so in a place like Mantua, the Gonzagas will do portrait coins. And again, you see the conscious use of classicism in the reverse type. These are often copied after Roman imperial coins. The reverses, sometimes even the legends, the inscriptions, uh, although on the obverse here, Francesco Gonzaga looks very medieval or very Renaissance. He's not, I mean, that's a querist, I guess, but he doesn't really look terribly Roman. Okay, again, the world keeps changing and the biggest change, again, it comes from the North in terms of raw material and the discovery of uh, great quantities of silver in the Tyrol, in the Austrian territories, particularly in a valley, the Valley of St. Joachim. And so the what's called silver gulden, which means the silver gold coin, that is the silver coin that's worth a ducat, basically, is minted very large in great quantities and it gives its name Joachim's Thaler, that is the coin from the valley of Joachim, to the denomination Thaler, which of course comes down as dollar in modern terms. And this is basically the origin of the silver dollar, uh, which of course means more to my classes of American students than it would to you, but it's, it's still uh, the, the big heavy silver coin, which becomes the basis really of much of modern European monetary history. You'll notice also an interesting thing. This is the earliest European coin to, it's not the earliest European coin to bear a date, but it's certainly the first one to bear it in uh, Indo-Arabic numerals rather than Roman numerals. So a lot is happening right here at the end of the 15th century in terms of the circulating coinage. The taller, this heavy silver large coin, gets again taken over in Spain, again under Ferdinand and Isabella, where their coinage is accounted in Maravedis, which is an old Arabic unit of account, but the silver coinage is based on a one real, a two real, a four real, and an eight real piece, and in this period it's the eight real, the peso de a ocho, or peso, or piece of eight, which comes to dominate. Uh, here is an early piece of eight of Ferdinand and Isabella minted in Spain. Most of what survives are the very crude ones oops, uh, minted in the New World with the fresh silver from the world. And you see, again, they're not using a good screw press in the New World. They're just trying to hammer this, and you see how unfortunate the results of trying to hammer this big piece of silver. When the silver gets back to Spain and is reminted on the good Spanish presses, it comes out nice and beautiful and clean and proper. Okay, so uh, let's sort of review where we are up until, say, 1500 with the various coinages. Uh, the gold coin, basically florin equals genovino equals docket, with a few minor exceptions. 
generally unchanging, about three and a half grams of 24 karat pure gold. And every city, every polity has a silver coinage that is valued in terms of the florin or ducat and is quoted daily. In Venice, it's quoted on the Rialto, and that is the news of the Rialto of the day is what is the price of silver in versus the ducat. Everything else is secondary. That's what they want to know on the Rialto. Uh, we start getting new denominations in the 16th century. The scudo in Italy, which is a larger gold coin. In France, we get a lot of new coins because, again, the French are trying to base their system on the silver, and so they have to keep changing their gold coins. So you get the Ecude, the chaise where he's on it. The Ecube wears a shield, the chaise where he has a, he's on a chair, the mouton where you have the Lamb of God, and the Franca Cheval where he's boldly riding on horseback. In England, we get the noble, which leads to the sovereign. Uh, again, changing in weight to keep it in tandem with the hopefully standard silver coinage. In addition, in every place, you have two other levels of money. So you have the gold coinage, which would be used for large purchases, used for exchange from one place to another, used for state payments, sometimes used for state collections. Uh, and then you have two levels of silver coinage, what we call the white money and the black money. The white money is the money that has the coinage that is mainly silver. Coinage is almost never 100% silver. Gold coinage should be 100% gold. For various technical metallurgical reasons, silver coinage should not be 100% silver, just like you have sterling because it's easier to work 925 than it is 1,000. Similarly, all the silver monies have less than 100% uh, silver. Each place has its own white money of varying weight called often gross, well, well, soldino su shilling. Local standards, frequent debasements. It's very hard to keep track. If you're in Mantua, it's not going to be the same as what's happening in Padua or what's happening anywhere else. And you have to get, when, when you're coming in as a scholar deeply into the 18th century antiquarian literature, to know within these smaller places what the various monies are. And again, the silver gets quoted against the gold coinage. How many lira of silver coinage it takes to buy a ducat or a florin. Then below that, you have the black money, which is technically what we call billin, less than 50% silver. And these will be called piccolo, denaro, penny, heller. Local standards, frequent debasements, quoted against the white money. To some extent, this is almost token money. People don't really care how much silver there is. But in Italy, until the 1470s, actually, uh, we never get copper money. All money has some silver in it, even if it's 1%. So the idea of a purely what we call fiduciary coinage with only copper and no precious metal does not exist. It only comes in at the very end of the 15th century in Italy or as far as I recall anywhere else in Europe except maybe Sicily and uh, South Italy. They have copper coinages on and off before the later 15th century. Here we just have at one moment of time four coins circulating side by side in Venice, the gold ducat on the top left of the screen, the silver grosso on the top right. It's actually a little bit bigger, uh, but in this period, it's, I think, 36 silver grossi to the gold ducat. And then the silver soldino, 
bottom left, and the bill in denaro. The soldino, by definition, is 12 denari, because it's a soldo that is a shilling of a... Uh, but it actually has more silver than 12 denari, which causes other problems that we won't get into now. Uh, but this is what's going on in the real world throughout this period. Different denominations of different metals filling different monetary niches. So the silver would be the pay of normal employees, while the gold is the pay of the elite. The soldino would be what you'd use in the retail market, whereas the grosso you might use in the wholesale market. The piccolo is what you'd give beggars and other very minor payments, alms, things like that. Okay, so just to reiterate, uh, Venetian systems of account. All right, now we're getting into systems of account, which become hard to wrap your mind around often. In Venice, in the period I work in, which is around 1400, there are three basic systems of account and a few others that we don't need to go into, dowries, are assessed in their own system of account. Uh, forced loans to the FISC are assessed in their own system of account, but there are three that will be used by private individuals. The lira di piccoli, which is a 240 piccoli, uh, and it's uh, in this time range, equal to five grossi or 12, 20 soldini and 48 denari equals the grosso. But it will vary against the gold coinage. It's fixed in terms of within the silver system, but it will vary against the gold coinage. The lira di grossi. By definition, the lira is 240 grossi, not 240 piccoli. And by definition, well, there is a period in which it becomes fixed at one lira di grossi equals 10 ducats. And therefore, 24 grossi equals a ducat. And remember, 48 piccoli equals a grosso. But this splits into two systems of account because the silver moves away from the gold. They stay in tandem for a certain period, but you cannot maintain that. Actually, Nero tried to maintain the gold-silver ratio, which is why he is blamed for everything that went wrong in the Roman Empire, because you can't do that, even if you're Nero, even if it's the Roman Empire. You certainly can't do that when you're Venice, which is just one commune in a commercial competitive world. So you have the lira di grossi a moneta, where you count grosso coins, and 240 grosso coins make the lira di grossi. And you have the lira di grossi a oro, where you count ducats, and 10 ducats makes the lira di grossi a oro. The problem is when you get an account book, you can usually tell it if it's lira di grossi or lira di piccoli, but you cannot always tell if it's lira di grossi a oro or lira di grossi a moneta. They're usually fairly close. What separates them is the drift in silver away from gold, and that's called the agio or vantaggio. That is, the amount of extra silver you would use you couldn't buy it when the silver declines. 240 grossi would not buy you 10 ducats. 24 grossi would not buy you a ducat. You'd have to throw an extra grosso in because the silver is worth less than it should be. And that's the agio. And sometimes you will get that quoted. And when they quote the agio, you know your account book is in lira di grossi a oro. Okay. Uh, all right, I gave out some examples of account books of the period. Here's a Venetian one 
from 1408. It's example three on your sheet. Now, some people have, yeah, on this Documenti di Storia Economica, it's a wonderful thing, still in print from the Datini in Plato and worth getting if you deal with monetary things. So it's uh, number 137, that's pages 426. Uh, it's the third example. Some people in the room, I'm sure, can just read what's on the screen. Uh, but for those of you who have a little bit of trouble, uh, we have the transcription that Melis did here. Uh, so Stefano Dolmo Didar, that is Stefano Dolmo has given on the 16th of August for 47 batches, I think it's scatole, of cotton gotomi uh, at the price of Per scatola, 477 lire net at 11 ducats, three grossi for 100 uh, pounds. In it mounts up as appears on folio four, uh, folio eight in what he, his old account book, which he calls the royal account book. Whereas in this one, this is double entry bookkeeping where everything appears both in the journal, which is the running account of day by day entries and payments, and in the ledger, which is, there'll be a page for Stefano Dolmo, how much he gives, how much he receives. And that was folio eight in the old ledger, we're now in a new ledger, folio 12. Okay, and I've tried to break it out here. This stuff, you always have to sit there with a calculator and a pen and just try to work it out. Uh, 47 bunches of cotton for one bunch weighing 477 pounds cleaned at 11 ducats, three grossy, the 100 weight. And then this is the monetary term. And this is what tips us off that we're in lira di grossi. So lira five, and then a dot, something else five, and then a dot, something else three, all in Roman numeral, and then you're switching to Arabic numeral 25. So basically, often you will see a GR here or a GR here, which tells you that it is five lira di grossi, five soldo, soldi di grossi, three grossi, and then 25 piccoli. Yeah. And so here I've worked it out, and we see that the total comes out to 53.52 ducats. Uh, when you work it out one way, it comes out to 53.066 ducats, which is what he says in the thing, 11 ducats, three grossi. And then when you look in the account, it's 53.52. And so the difference between this and this is the agio, the difference between the lira di grossi a oro and the lira di grossi a moneta. They're very close in this example there. Sometimes there's a much bigger agio. Okay, so uh, that's the beginning of the explanation on coinage of this period. Uh, just to begin dealing with the question of what's any of this worth? Because uh, you want to know what your books are worth and other people want to know what import of cloth is worth, et cetera, et cetera. The easiest way to, in my mind is to figure out buying power and not buying power in the basket of goods that economists use, but basically what does it take to feed a family for a year? And you get this a lot in wills where people say have an illegitimate child by a slave and they say, and in order to feed Maria and the three children, I am leaving 20 ducats a year. 
to, for housing and food. And so you begin getting an idea that a family of four, since she's not going to work, could survive on 20 ducats a year. Here, from the work I did on the Venetian mint, uh, we see that the workshop foreman is earning 30 ducats a year. So again, he's skilled labor, but not in any way an elite. So 30 ducats a year, presumably he's feeding his family. Blacksmith is higher trained, more valuable person, 40 to 50 ducats a year. Die engraver, well they also were jewelers and worked on the side. They're highly specialized. Uh, Mint, Weyer, both of these people were not, were expected to, they are both nobles, but they are not getting income other than at the Mint, as far as we know. Uh, the Venetian nobility was very large, and there's a whole under level of the nobility who worked for a living in jobs that were reserved for the lower members of the nobility. This becomes you know, a real scandal in the 17th and 18th century. But in the 14th and 15th, it's actually working. There are a fair number of nobles whom you never see on the councils, you never see getting any honors, they're never diplomats, they're never ambassadors, but they work in these jobs that are reserved for nobles. And so here, this mint-weyer classification uh, gets 40 to 70 ducats a year, and the mint master, who's a, no a noble and skilled person. Uh, he's actually fiscally responsible if there's a deficit in the account books he has to pay. So it, it's a very uh, high pressure job, say. And so, so you can begin getting an idea of how these uh, salaries would work in terms of social level of subsistence and these are pretty much in uh, agreement with what you see, say, in a will where they're leaving money for uh, a family. That, you know, that 30 ducats a year would be okay, they'd survive. 50 ducats, they'd live relatively comfortably. 200 ducats a year, someone would, you know, live pretty well, but we're not at the upper levels. These are all, these nobles are, as I said, the poor members of the nobility. Okay, so I hope you have questions. Thank I you very much first.